0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Some of you have upon your bookshelf at home a book with this title, Everyone's a Theologian, by the late R.C. Sproul. Even if you don't have that book or have never read it, you can learn just from the title a very important lesson, namely, everyone's a theologian. That means you, yourself, are a theologian. Theology, you may know, is the study of God, but more broadly than that, it's the study of every truth God has revealed to us in the scriptures. That's theology. So a theologian is someone who looks at any part of life and can take The revealed truth of Scripture and apply it to that part of life. Technically, this is what we call systematic theology, but this is theology. So, you're a theologian. You have to answer the question for yourself and maybe for others. What's an angel? Has your child ever asked you that? Or a new believer? Or have you thought that yourself? You all have an answer to that. It might be a bad answer, it might be a good answer, but you have an answer because you're a theologian. Who is God? And who is God not? And what picture of God in society today is accurate and which ones are not accurate? You've thought about that, you have to. What is the gospel? You can't share the gospel if you don't know it and that's a theological question. What does God think about gender? That's very practical. That's theology. You have an answer to that. And hopefully it's in line with scripture because you are a theologian. You cannot have the attitude that says, I'm just not much of a thinker. I'm more of a doer. I will leave the theologizing to other people. No, you can't do that. You're a theologian. It's not just for the professors and the pastors up in their ivory towers speculating on abstractions. Theology is practical. It's meat and potatoes. It's dirt under the fingernails. It's nuts. It's bolts. It's your life. And you are a theologian and you have to do theology. If you want proof of this, just consider the fact that the first great theologians of the church knew more about tilapia than they did about anything angels or God or heaven at first. These were the fishermen. These were, as their opponents acknowledged, uneducated common men. The disciples, they're the theologians that we draw our theology from. And they started off catching fish, manual laborers of the ancient world and uneducated. But they were theologians, and we're glad they were. And you're a theologian. Jesus spoke to them, to their minds, follow me. And none of them could object, I'm not a thinker. They followed because they had to heed the command of Christ just as you do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus says this to your mind just as he does to them. So you're a theologian. I'm not telling you to be a theologian. I'm telling you you are a theologian. I'm telling you to be a good theologian. Good theologians make good Christians. And bad theologians make bad Christians. If you find a person who wanders away from orthodox truth and their understanding of God or Christ or any theological subject, you will find that they also wander away from love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And they wander into dissensions and all other activities of the flesh. Their theology bleeds into their life. And you might say, well, there are some people I know who are great theologians, and they know all the very big words and can cite the verses to back it up, but their lives are terrible. It's not because they know too much theology. It's because, as Paul told the Corinthians, you do not yet know as you ought. They don't actually know enough theology, or their theology is not accurate. Your theology makes what your life will be. So you need to be a good theologian. I can prove this statement by the text we encounter today because I said this earlier. This is one of the richest theological texts in the whole Bible, dealing with the person of Christ. And so it's as if Paul the Apostle stands up in front of us with a blackboard and with his piece of chalk, writes across the top, Christology. Christology. 101. He is going to teach you Christology, the study of Christ, His person, who He is. It's theology. But what's so amazing about Philippians 2 is the reason why Paul does that. He does it because he wants to tell you How to live your life. He wants you to be humble. He wants the Philippians to be humble. And therefore, he pauses and says, first, I need to teach you Christology. Because he knows that if you get your Christology right, then that will change your life. You will be a humble, healthy, united church. Let's see this then, this Christology that Paul is going to begin to teach us starting here in verse 5. have this mind among yourselves, which I take this to be, was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember that last week, Paul was appealing to the Philippians and to you to complete his joy by being united of one mind. They were, in humility, to count others more significant than themselves. That's very practical. It's about as practical as it gets. And if you skip down past the section we're in now, past 5 through 11, and get to verse 12, you have something else very practical. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now work out your salvation. With fear and trembling, you will say... Humility, obedience, those are just the practical parts of the Christian life. That's what you expect to find in Paul. So why, right in the middle of these appeals, does he give us, verses 5 through 11, a long section on Christology, which scholars through the ages have debated without end? Why does Paul pause to give us these verses and it's like i said before this theology for paul is not up on a high top shelf dusty up there to be withdrawn when you're having trivia night or something the theology the christology what who christ is what he did this for paul is what shapes your very life so when he's appealing for you to be something as a christian to do something He's going to bring Christology to bear. He knows that's what changes you. You can see it in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. ESV has which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a question because there's no verb in the Greek, so we have to supply it. So the ESV has chosen sort of an unpopular view, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have an NASB or an NIV or a King James, you'll have something like have this mind or attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And because that's going to be the emphasis in the context, I take that to be what Paul means, this is the point. Here's a mind or attitude that Paul wants you to have, and he says, in order to push that obligation upon you, I want you to know it's the same mind in Christ. If that's your Christology, if that's what you think of Christ, then you will have that very mind yourself. So see again, verse 8 being found in human form, he what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient. You see those? Humbled, obedient. Where did we just see those? In the appeals that Paul is making. You, in humility, count others more significant. You, as you've always obeyed, so now obey. So humbled, obeyed. Where do we see those? Ah, in our Christology, in Christ. If you know these things are true of Christ, really know them then you're going to imitate Christ in them. Your Christology leads to your life. This all means practically that if I, by the Spirit of God today, preach accurately and well the Word of God, and you, by that same Spirit's power, hear rightly the Word of God, then you leave this building more humble and more obedient than you came in. Why? Because I've been hammering on you to be obedient and humble? No. Because you have a better view of your Savior Christ who is obedient and humble. You have a better Christology. And it will change your life. One final way to prove how practical this theology will be is that this is almost certainly, from verses 6 down to 11, a hymn that the early Christians sang. We have a few cases in the New Testament letters, in Colossians and here and in 1 Timothy, where Paul seems to be citing, quoting, A hymn, just like we sing hymns. So, for Paul, this theology is not just something for you to think. It's something for you to do. It's something for you to sing and worship. It's a part of life. It impacts us. This morning, then, we are pausing with Paul in the text. As he writes on the board, Christology, across the top, and Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two. He has two points in this lesson he's teaching us. And one is humbled and the other is exalted today we are looking just at that first point under Christology humbled next week we're going to look at the rest of it exalted but today it's humbled and we could add some subpoints, which will be the points of this message under Christology humbled number one what Christ was Number two, what Christ became. We are entering into some hefty mysteries, but practical mysteries. So let's begin with that first sub-point, what Christ was in our text. Paul tells us, verses five and six. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What was Christ? We're told twice over in two ways. Number one, he was in the form of God. Number two, he had equality with God. Now, I don't think we can push these words too hard. If you do, you'll get into heresy. So take, for example, just that first statement. He says, Christ was in the form of God. When we see that word form in the English and also in the Greek, it suggests to us a shape, right? So we think, oh, he was in the shape of God. But immediately, you good scholars that you are know from the Old Testament, God does not have a shape. In fact, twice in Deuteronomy, Moses warns the people not to make idols because, quote, you saw no form, different words, same concept, you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Mount Sinai or Horeb. God, as God, does not have a shape. The church father, Augustine, if you know him, this was one of his greatest struggles before he knew Christ. He said, I cannot follow a God in Christianity who is just this huge shape stretched out infinitely. makes no sense. It does make no sense because that's not God. And he realized that, came to Christ. God does not have a shape. So how can we say that Christ, before he became a man, he was in the form of God? Well, this is because the word form doesn't just have to mean shape. If you push it too hard, you're going to make it mean shape. Don't do that. It's not. What else could this word mean? I think Paul is using this word because he's wanting to draw a contrast. Because he'll use the word twice. He says that Jesus was in the form of God. And when you go to verse 7, he takes on the form, same word, form of a servant. Form of God form of a servant. He chooses the word form because it can convey in both of these cases the characteristics of, and no more, just that. So Jesus had the characteristics of God, and he takes on the characteristics of a servant, which we'll see here soon. This is, in other words, to say most simply, Jesus was God. He's in the form of God because he was God. He looks like he's characterized by Godness because he's God. That's what Paul is saying here. We have to tread very carefully here, so carefully here, and Paul is very careful in what he says. Paul is not saying that Jesus was God in the form of God, and then he gave that up. And he stopped being God. Not saying that. That's heresy. That's false. Not true. Not said here. Not said anywhere in scripture. So when we get to the word empties, thinking, oh, he was in the form of God. He empties himself of being in the form of God. No. (laughs) Good try, but no. No, no, no. That is not what Jesus empties himself of. Jesus never stopped being God. Paul is saying he was God in the form of God, characterized by Godness, but he's not saying that he emptied himself of that. <clears throat> you can see this sort of even if you just go in verse 8. Remember form and form? What's that second form? By taking the form of a servant. Taking is an important word here. So how did Jesus empty himself? We'll see by taking something to himself. Not by getting rid of the form of God, not possible, but by taking the form of a servant. This means that Jesus as God took on something that he did not have before. But when he took it on, he didn't give up what he had before. He continued being God. We are now entering into, if you like the large words, what we call the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Google it if you don't know how that's spelled. But the hypostatic union. This means that Christ was God, continued to be God, but in the incarnation, when he was consumed and conceived in the womb of Mary, he took on human nature. There he is with the nature of God. He takes on human nature. So you have two natures, human and divine. And they are united. Hence, hypostatic, two hypostases, hypostatic union. This does not mean 50% God, 50% man. This means as much God as it's possible to be, as much man as it's possible to be, Jesus was both of those things. He was in the form of God, He maintained being God, He took on our humanity. This is why it's tricky sometimes reading the New Testament and you found this, Jesus will say something like, of that day or hour of His return, no one knows, not even me. And you say, Jesus is God. God knows all things. That's one of his attributes. How could Jesus not know when he'll return? Well, within this union of two natures, we say things like, because it's the best we can do to understand it, Jesus as God in that nature did know, but as a man in that nature did not know the time of his return. Two natures. We have no parallel. I don't have any example to give you. I don't have any um, nice metaphor to help you understand this because it's beyond our understanding, just like the Trinity. But it's true. Now, you might object that it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you say, okay, he's equal with God, but if he's not going to hold on to it, that means he gives it up. No, (laughs) no again, please. No, this is not true. Jesus continues equal with God in being, and therefore Paul must mean hereby equality with God, something other than the fact that Jesus is God. And it seems like probably what he means is that what Jesus gave up was his right and prerogative as God to continue existing as God and not as a man. Not feeling our suffering or pain, not having a human body subject to the curse, none of that. Just continuing as God. Jesus didn't grasp that, that equality with God. He didn't hold on to that. I emphasize again, however you take each section of this passage, Jesus did not give up or empty himself of his Godhood. Part of the reason we know this is when we come to a passage of Scripture, any passage that's difficult to understand, like this one, then what we do is we go to the rest of the Bible and we see if there are any clearer passages that can help us understand this one. And when we do so, we find Jesus as God never could change from being God. This is part of what we call the divine attribute of unchangeableness. Jesus can't change From being God to not being God and then return to being God. Can't do it. Jesus was, always was, always has been, is, always will be God. How do we know this? In the beginning was the Word, John 1 says. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Was God. Okay? Then you go down in John 1 and it says, and the word became flesh. That's what our passage is saying too, see? Now, did the word stop being God when he became flesh? No. Have you ever read the Gospel of John? <laughs> Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he says in the flesh. Seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I Am. that's Yahweh that's the name of God he takes it to himself he says it again in the garden and the people fall back I'm he they fall back whoever has seen me has seen the father I've been so long with you don't know that all of Jesus' claims of divinity in the gospel of John happen after he takes the form of a servant and is born in the likeness of men so you see how that clearer book of the Bible there the whole book shows you that Jesus, in emptying himself, did not empty himself of divinity. Again, we have Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. We have Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's After his incarnation, bearing a body like ours. Those statements are made about Jesus. So what is Paul saying here? He's wanting to emphasize first by saying Jesus was in the form of God and had an equality with God. What he's emphasizing is not that Jesus loses his godness, but that this is the height from which Jesus is starting. This is point A, In redemption, this is Jesus BC, if you will, before his conception in the womb of Mary, his what we call incarnation, becoming a person, a man, a human like us. This is where Jesus is starting from, in the form of God, equality with God. This is the mystery of it all. But in eternity past, all the way up until this time when Jesus was born, was conceived and then was born... Jesus existed as God, but also he existed as God and not a man. And then, in time, he becomes God and man. I don't know what I'm talking about, do you? This is beyond us, but this is the mystery of the hypostatic union But what we're supposed to draw, again, to bring this practically, what we're supposed to draw, why Paul even points this out is he's saying, look where Jesus starts before he lowers himself in the incarnation. He is God and not a man. That means when Jesus begins, he is not subject to any pain or shame that we as humans are subject to. He doesn't have to experience it. He doesn't have a physical body that can feel the sensation of pain if you were in that state with your lower back aches and whatever other chronic pains and issues you're dealing with, and you were in a condition where you felt zero pain. Think of how many people abuse opioids or other drugs that lessen pain because it feels so good to be relieved of it. That's where Jesus is beginning. No pain, no possibility of a feeling of pain, No human can reach up and shame Jesus. He's not in a body. He is the creator God in the heavens, doing as he pleases. That's what it means to be in the form of God with equality with God. The Christ was always the son of God. And there was this time when he was God and not a man. And that time, at that time, he had every right to choose not to become a man. He could look down from heaven upon the sons of men and see all of the perversions and distortions, all of the pain, the agonies, the wars, the chaos, the diseases. He can see all of those things and decide what? Let's just wipe it out with a flood. Or he could have looked down upon us and all of our difficulties and decided, I'm not going to touch that. Like the God of the deists who's so far away, he's not involved. Jesus could as the son of God look down see all of the chaos the mess we've made of this world and suffering and just be somewhat involved but at a distance like Allah the God of the Muslims and we would not blame the Christ for doing any of those things we would do them ourselves but the miracle of the incarnation we'll celebrate at Christmas is this he didn't hold on to that he could have and he didn't. So this is what Christ was, Subpoint one, under humbled, what Christ was. He was, for an eternity, however you fathom that, he was God and not a human. That's what Christ was, but now we move to the second subpoint, and this is the amazing part. I mean, that's amazing. This is another amazing part. Not just what Christ was, but what Christ became. Christ was God and not man, but he became God and man. Look at verses 7 and 8. But, there's the contrast. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I've already explained what emptied does not mean. It does not mean emptied of his godness. Notice, if you just read the text, does it say emptied of his godness? No. No, it doesn't. So don't put that in there. That's not there. It does not mean emptied of his divine attributes. Doesn't mean that Jesus, to become a man, takes his all-knowing, his all-power, his all-wisdom, et cetera, and removes them. Says, I'll get those back later on. No, because if Jesus were to lose any of his divine attributes, what's a divine attribute? It's merely a description of what God is, who God is. If he loses any of them, he's not God. So, he keeps all of those. Even in being emptied, we have to affirm that the Son of God kept as God... All the divine attributes. What then does it mean he emptied himself? Well, Paul actually tells us. I mean, look at the verse. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That's how he emptied himself. Actually, if you ask the question, what did he empty himself of? There's not an answer. You're pushing it too hard. Paul isn't thinking of a specific thing that he's emptying himself of. He's using an idiom, a metaphor. He's saying Christ poured himself out, as Paul will say later of of himself. He's just telling us that this was a humbling of Christ, as we'll see. He continues as God, but he takes the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of men. He becomes the God-man. You may know that in the three and four hundreds A.D., there were four very important church meetings. We call them councils, four of them, and they all had to do with what do we do with the Trinity And the two natures of Jesus. How do we make sense of this? And lots and lots of church leaders gathered together. They were not perfect people. They were not infallible. But they met together as early Christians trying to understand what we're talking about right now. Looking at Philippians 2 and saying, what does this mean? And we as non-Catholic Protestants, when we look at those first four meetings and the creeds they produced, we affirm them. They're not equal with Scripture. They could be wrong, but we think they're actually true, that the Spirit of God was in some way involved in guiding these early church leaders to the truth, imperfect though they were. Therefore, when we look at the creeds that they produced, we can affirm with them, for example, the first of them, the Nicene Creed, that was the first of the four, and it together with the meeting a little bit later, Constantinople, those together produced for us the Nicene Constantinople Creed, and we can confess with it that Christ is, quote, God of God, and very God of very God, and, quote, being of one substance with the Father. Against Arianism, early heresy that said Jesus was created, he's like God but less than God, the church fathers at this council said no, He is of one substance, one essence. He is, Jesus is God. That was our first point. Jesus is God, okay? Always was, always is, the end. But go a little later into the other councils. When you get to the fourth one, Chalcedon, now they're asking more of the questions, okay, let's assume Jesus is God. How could he also be a man? And we affirm with the Chalcedonian Creed, quote, that Christ is, quote, consubstantial, you like that word? <laughs> it's a big word. Of one substance with, that's what that means. The Father, according to the Godhead, and of one substance with us, according to the manhood. You see that? There is as God and as man. And we don't know how those work together, but they're both there. Jesus is, of essence, of substance, God. Fully God, not half God, not third God. Fully, completely God and fully, completely man. He was ever since the incarnation. He continues so today. He's not less a person now. He's not less God. He's always been God and he took upon himself our nature of manhood. Therefore, he's completely God and he's completely man. This is maybe shocking to us, but what that means is when Paul says he emptied himself This is an emptying by addition. Jesus' emptying of himself involved taking something he did not have before. It was our manhood. Christ, in coming into our world, and this is almost difficult to imagine, took to himself a nature that he himself had created. For, quote, Colossians 1, by him all things were created. (laughs) He created humanity and manhood. But then in time, in the incarnation, he took our human nature upon himself somehow and became what he was not. Now God and man, the God-man completely, and will be so forever Now, how you can be just God for eternity and then become God-man for eternity, look, I don't know. I don't know. But isn't this what Paul is telling us? This is the miracle of the incarnation, Christ taking on humanity. He was, quote in our text, born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, he was found in human form. Why did he look like a man? Why was he found in human form? Because he really, genuinely was and is a man. He's human. Being human in our world, this means Christ immediately exposed himself to pain. From the moment he could sense it mentally in the womb itself, he could experience pain, ignominy, shame, Mockers on earth who laughed at God before now could laugh to God's face. He could be touched, and if he could be touched, that meant he could also be hit. That meant he could also be mocked. But notice in our text, the degree to which Christ went goes even further than that. It wasn't just that he became a person. For if Christ took on our nature, maybe he would take on our nature, become a person, uh, the greatest of all people. Maybe he would come into our world and become the emperor of Rome. In fact, the emperors of Rome at some point concluded that, hey, we are God. (laughs) And so people ascribe divinity to those emperors. We might expect if God were to become a man, then certainly he'd be like the emperor of Rome. But what does our text tell us? That wasn't enough for Christ to humble himself thus far to become a person, to take on our weak nature But Christ took, quote, the form of a servant. He didn't just become a human, he became one of the lowest sorts of humans, the one that nobody else wants to be. This is like what Isaiah had predicted so long before. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. You understand that Christ is constructing his own body. He can make it Beautiful, more beautiful than any person you find on Instagram or TikTok or what have you, celebrities. He can form for himself any body that he wants and he makes himself in the form of a servant so unimpressive that nobody stops to look at him. He's just a common, typical, Middle Eastern man of the first century. See Jesus in the form of a servant. See him. God, this is God. See him robed in a towel in the upper room before his death and kneeling at the feet of these fishermen, working hard to scrub off a bit of clotted dirt stuck to the foot and smelling all the earthiness of his followers. See that and know, that's God. Or again, see Jesus walking by the way, stopping what he's doing, giving his attention to a leper with a deformed body, A skin disease and Jesus stopping, reaching out, touching the man upon his decaying flesh and healing him and say, that is God. Or you hear Jesus talking to his bickering disciples say, for who is greater, says Jesus, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at table the greater? But I... I'm among you as one who serves. That's God. Or hear Him say, The greatest among you shall be your servant. And even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The person saying that, I came to serve, to be a servant, that person is God. Really, truly. Not half God. That's fully God revealed to us as man. That level of descent, being in the form of God, he empties himself, not just as a human now, but in the form of a servant. And of course, he goes further down than that. Verse eight, and being found in human form, that's pretty low, servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of, this means this is how far, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now in our Christology, we learn most fundamentally why the incarnation happened. Why did Christ choose to be born? Notice it was his choice. He emptied himself. You saw that? Somebody didn't empty him. Why does he make this choice from heaven painless to enter our world, be a servant, go to the cross, And we might say, because he loved us. And that is true. But he has more motivation than that. And in this passage, why? Becoming obedient to the point of death. The fundamental reason that Christ came to this world was because he was doing the will of his Father. He was obeying the will of God so that There in the garden, he proves it on the eve of his crucifixion when he says to his father, not my will, but yours be done. That's him as a man. As God, their wills are perfectly united, of course. But as a man, he doesn't want to die and suffer that way, that hell on earth. And yet, he more wants to obey the father. And he goes down that far to bear our curse, to suffer upon the cross, even death on a cross. A cursed thing. Listen, this is, in one passage, the highest of all heights in terms of experience. Jesus in the form of God existing forever, untouched, untouchable, and descending to the lowest pit that we could ever craft on earth with all our evil shovels digging forever. This is the lowest that we get. Death, even, even, death on a cross. The Roman orator Cicero said it is beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen even to think about crucifixion. Is it not beneath the dignity of God to experience it? But praise God we're not worshipping Rome. We're worshipping this sort of God. A humble God? Who would have guessed that? None of the other ancient religions? Even death on a cross. The cross is foolishness. The cross is everything you're not looking for in life. The cross is loss when you're looking for win. The cross is death when you're looking to live, understandably. The cross is failure. You're wanting to succeed. The cross is naked shame before the public. You are wanting honor. This is the lowest pit. And Jesus chose it. Nobody put him there. He chooses it. He's making this decision all the way from the beginning. His full descent, he knows along the way where he is going. And as he draws near the bottom of that pit, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That's what I'd say. (coughs) Excuse me. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. This is what Christ became. We saw what Christ was, God. He became God and man, but not just man. Servant, but not just servant. Death, but not just death. Death upon a cross to do the will of God. So there is your lesson on Christology, and if God preserves my voice for this conclusion, we shall conclude. But Paul now takes his chalk, drops it, wipes his dusty hands upon himself. Why did we just talk about a rather complex subject like Christology, like the hypostatic union, the Nicene and the Chalcedonian creeds? Who else is talking about this? Why are we doing this? Why does it matter that you know that Jesus always has been and is God 100% and in his incarnation, even that word's big, but in his incarnation now takes upon himself full humanity? Why does that matter? Is this just Paul like some old professor unaware completely of the boredom of his students going on and on about a topic he's interested in that's completely irrelevant to them? No. No! Christology, what you believe about Christ, you don't have to know all the words. You might learn some of them. But your view of Christ shapes your life. If you see Christ as fully God, willingly making the decision as God, painless, no human body, to enter into this messed up world that you would never choose to enter into... But if you see him making that choice freely and willingly because the Father says, go, and he says, I will, and he enters into this world as a servant, that's the Christ that you follow and worship, he's a servant washing the feet of others, never once saying, that's beneath me, but going down beneath everyone else, the greatest as a servant, if that's the Christ that you worship, and there he is washing the feet, and when you think he can't go lower still, he goes lower down to death even death upon a cross. He does not say, save me from this hour. He merely says, Father, if it's your will, I go. And he goes, he suffers shame, he suffers misery, and in so doing, blesses the world. If that's your Christology, what sort of people will you be in godliness, in humility one toward another? If you worship some cruel tyrant of the skies, then go be a cruel tyrant. If you worship an idol, be deaf and dumb like an idol. If you worship the humble God, then be humble. And you will. For if you find in Christ the most attractive and beautiful of all persons, this attribute of humility, Him saying, come to me, come here. I am lowly, gentle and lowly of heart. Come, take my yoke upon your shoulders. Learn from me. If that's your Christ, that's the Christ you're coming to, you will not only be good Christians, humble toward each other in God, but you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Christ, we are Confess with the believing church of all time, my Lord and my God. and We're not ashamed to own you as our God because you were not ashamed to own us as your children, as your people. Jesus, you're not ashamed to call us your brothers. You were tempted like us in every way because you were completely a human, yet without sin because you are completely God. And so we know we have a sympathetic high priest and in you we have a full model for how to shape our lives. Keep us from all selfish ambition because you are not selfishly ambitious. Keep us from all arrogance because you and your humanity are not arrogant. Keep us from all pride that disdains to bend the knee and wash the foot of another because that was not you. That is not you. Lord, If we wish to be exalted as you were exalted, as we'll see next week, teach us to humble ourselves and empty ourselves in a parallel way. And in humility, consider the interests of others above our own. For the sake of your great name.